The Greenwood and Munlershaw Newcastle Fans TV is proudly sponsored by Boyle Sports. Sign up today and you can get up to £20 in free bets. To get this fantastic offer, go to boilsports.com forward slash sign up today. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Greenwood and Mona show here on Newcastle Fans TV. Myself and Sam have been with Refereeing Loyalty and it is a fantastic episode. It is episode number 62 with Mark Clattenburg, big Newcastle fan, refereed some of the biggest games around the world and Sam, he's been on the Greenwood and Mona show. What an explosive book, first and foremost. I, I, yeah, I mean, fantastic. So, so lucky that I got uh, this before its release. Um, and I've read it all, ingested it. Fantastic book. We've been wanting to get him on since the pandemic, but obviously he's been busy writing the thing. So to get him on finally is a huge, huge um, relief slash honour slash privilege. Um just so many stories like we've like this we've had a 45 50 minutes with him and we've barely scratched the surface we could have we could have spoken to him for hours and hours and hours it's such a unique perspective that mark can give being a, a top class uh world-class official uh who's at the top of his game for years and years and years um and he's a and he's a, a northeast lad as well what what could be better uh, exactly what could be better and i have to be honest I thought he was very articulate the way he spoke about a lot of, you know, very, very interesting, interesting topics. Um, I thought when you, if you read the book and we thoroughly recommend you get the book, well, the link will be in the description of this podcast. It'll also be on the YouTube if you, if you want to watch it um, when you see our lovely faces. But I thought he was quite self-critical in his own performances, which just shows how good he was, Sam. And for me... I would argue he's probably the best referee that the Premier League has had. Some yeah. people will say Howard Webb. Some people will say Martin Atkinson, who doesn't really get uh, the best. Um, no, he doesn't. Best there's, reviews, a, there's a level of respect there, and that, that's the big thing with with Mark because he says at the start of the book that he wants to tell his side of events, and it's uh, it's um, the personal story. Besides, that he can respect people what they do. Like in all walks of life, you can. You get people you don't like and don't get along with and whatnot, but um, he still has a level of respect there. And while some people don't come out of the book well, but it's still, I think, quite balanced. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's just, uh, it's not a rant, if you know what I mean. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a ranting book that just goes after people. It, it's, it's as you say, way more articulate than that. It's, like, it's, it's just a fantastic read. Links are all in the description for it to, to go and get it. I. I I'm not a, a big, big, big reader, but like some of the like books, like the the authors that we've had on, like Paul Ferris and Michael Chaplin and um, and and now Mark Clattenburg, they've been brilliant, and I've thoroughly enjoyed reading them. It's um, it's, it's turned me on to reading, Johnny. Good to know. Um, <laughs> he's refereed the biggest games: the FA Cup final in 2016, the Champions League final the Euro 2016 final, and of course, the biggest of them all, the Alan Shearer testimonial in 2006. Can it get much better than that, Sam? Nope. No, it, it just doesn't. Kind of... there's, no, there's no point in giving you a long answer because the answer is no, it doesn't get any better. Yeah. I think it's... It, it, we've got a little bit of Newcastle in it. talks about hmm. some good memories and some players that um, he would have refereed that obviously a lot of Newcastle fans can remember. So it's certainly one not to be missed. And please listen intently because I think you'll thoroughly enjoy it. So without further ado, this is episode number 62 of the Greenwood and Morning Show. And it's with Mark Clattenburg. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Newcastle Fans TV. This is the Greenwood and Morning Show. And it's a very special Greenwood and Morning Show. Today, myself and Sam are joined by a man who has refereed the biggest games across Europe, across the world even. Biggest Premier League games, an FA Cup final, a Champions League final, Euro 2016 final. I feel like there's probably more games I've missed out. But yet, and Alan Shearer's testimonial, the biggest exactly. of them all. The biggest of them all. You, you've missed one match and never ever refereed Newcastle Sunderland. With, <laughs> with. We're here with Mark Clattenburg. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Mark, you have, I'm going to call an explosive book, a raw book out. It is The Whistleblower, your autobiography which Sam, you can see, 
on the camera. Read it, got a yeah, I read it all yesterday, and I'm not just saying this because <laughs> we've got you on the show, Mark. I'm not an avid reader. Books normally take me about six weeks to get through, <laughs> but I started your book at 9 a.m. yesterday, and I finished it by 4. I couldn't wow. put it down. It is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I mean, is it something that you've wanted to get off your chest for a while? Yeah, I suppose when you're an active referee, you can't speak, so therefore I never really thought about bringing a book out. Once I refereed all the big finals, I thought, you know what, I would love to give people an insight into hear what it's like being a professional referee and all the, 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 the problems or the highs and the lows of being a referee. And However, I wanted people to understand what it's like, me being the person, because what people always come across and when I get criticised on social media, it's about me, the referee. They never get the chance to actually see what it's like me being the person so when I when I went to Saudi Arabia I thought about it but I was still active and then I went to China so I ended up still being a referee so once I left China and COVID happened it was a perfect opportunity then to bring and start developing the book and now tomorrow it's its final day where it will be launched. How much are you looking forward to tomorrow and I think because like I say I've read as much as I can and I just feel like if you wanted to get this off your chest for such a long time, it's all about talking and not being able to talk too much. Do you wish you could have spoke earlier in your career? Do you think you were kind of restricted? No, probably because I would have been criticised more. Um, people used to see me as the controversial referee. But the problem was is I refereed all the biggest games, so therefore it has its uh, effects, of course, because if you make a mistake or you make a decision against one of the big sides, then you're going to get criticised a lot. Um for me, it was always all I wanted to do at that time was concentrate on what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the best referee I could be, not be the best referee in the world because sometimes you can't achieve that. But however, I worked hard so much off the field, fitness, analysed football so much to try and be the best I could be. And in 2016, everything seemed to come together um, that all the hard work for the previous years had, had come, come good and I got the chance to referee some of the biggest matches in the world. But not Newcastle Sunderland, as you say. No, <laughs> yeah, but the problem with that, yeah, but you've got to remember, it could have happened in 2016. But however, Sunderland weren't in the Premier League. Or were they in the Premier League? I'm not sure. Can't remember. Ooh, been out a few years. They've been out a few years. Just, just a few. I, I remember. I, I remember reading a bit where you talk about um, Phil Dowd, who's one of the good, good guys in in refereeing, because um, not all of them are. Um, and I just kept rem- remembering um, Phil Dowd refereed the 5-1, the Kevin yeah. Nolan hat-trick. Um, d- do you speak to other refs after they've um, been to a Newcastle game or, or like especially like kind of an iconic game like that? Yeah, I probably just slag them off to say, you know, how bad the performance <laughs> was. I'm a football fan. When I used to go and watch Newcastle, I was a football fan. And that's, you know, something that you have to accept that people are going to be passionate about their team and you bling it. However... I knew Phil Dad had a good match that day because we won 5-1. But what was a funny Sent story? Sent Bramble that, off as well. Hilarious. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Ex-Newcastle player. But what was funny was, I'll never forget Kevin Nolan and ended up um, Michael Oliver uh, just before one of the Christmas breaks sent Kevin Nolan off. Michael also is a fellow Geordie. So Kevin was a bit upset because he'd scored three goals that game and one of the Geordie referees has sent him off. So he, after his suspension, I'm refereeing him on, I think it was just before New Year's Day. And it was his first game back and I sent him off again. And after the match, he came to me dressing room and he said, Mark, he says, you've got a problem with me. I said, no, no, I haven't. He said, Michael Oliver sends us off. You've sent us off. Two Geordies. And I score a hat-trick against your arch enemies. He says, come on, you should be helping us out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. Absolutely brilliant. Um, You talk about your northeast roots, Mark. And Do you think that shaped you? The tougher, tougher upbringing shaped you into becoming even a better referee because you didn't have it easy growing up. Yeah, it helped us certainly in conflict because you know school was very, very difficult because of the background I came from. I was from a council estate. My mother and father didn't have too much money. However, um, you know because I played football and I, and I was good at it, I was always accepted that you know people. I was first picked on the on the playground. However. That got a bit more jealousy, so therefore the bullies started to, to wait for us after school. I used to try and find ways to, to avoid them. So I was always looking to try and avoid any conflict. But that also helped us, but also the northeast was certainly really, really good level of football. So when I was coming through the systems, the Northern League was very, very strong league. So 
it gave us the the elevations when I was going through the system to to be ready when I got on the when I started refereeing on the football league, for example. It gave us a good upbringing, and you know the Northern League was such a such a great league for me to come through um, to referee, and it certainly helped us. And you know all these skills that you need to be a referee. People always say the referees are policemen and school teachers, and it's interesting. Most of them are. I wasn't. I was an electrician. However, you've got to learn how to avoid the conflict and how to manage situations because certainly when you get to the highest level you're dealing with millionaires who sometimes some of them haven't got a respect for life and you've got to be able to to manage these people i mean it's it certainly kind of you were i remember when you first came in to the to the premier league obviously so young and whatnot and it was like a new a new breed a new generation of referees because like you reference in the book master ellery and and all, all them other types of like very prim and proper kind of old tough Tory kind of that sort of generation do you think they could see what was coming and that's why they kind of resented you so much no I think one of the problems was you know sometimes your face doesn't fit that's life it, it happens in every industry it happens in all walks of life my face certainly didn't fit um, I had some problems along me along the way and they always believed that I was a risk and therefore, they didn't look at the talent. They looked at me, the person, and thought, you know what? They're probably better off with a with a Martin Atkinson, who was the perfect role model, ex-police. So therefore, they pushed him for to try to elevate him in in, in matches abroad, and um, everything seemed to that used to spur me on. I suppose without that, without that uh, thing in life, to for everything to be against us, it made made me push even harder and harder and harder. And that's something that, you know, I was worked really, really hard on that I forgot what was outside and all I concentrated on was trying to be the best referee I could be on the pitch and try and forget about everything else. And, you know, in the end, Pierluigi Kalina, who was a big supporter of mine, you know, supported me to, to allow us to referee the biggest games in the world. And in the end, uh, the people within the Pigeon world didn't have any power to, to stop us doing any more matches because I did the games that I really wanted to do. Sometimes if you just do your job well, that speaks louder than words. And you show that on a regular basis, Marco. So you don't referee the sort of games you refereed without being very, very good at your job. You are very critical of Mike Riley and David Ellery in particular. Do you still think, in particular Mike Riley, that he is still the best man for the job that he's doing because there's a lot of criticism with referees throughout the years. Not not just putting yourself out there because you, you've seen what you've done. You've done an exceptional job for a long, long time. But do you think that there needs to be a changing of the guard? Do you think there needs to be someone that's maybe a bit younger, a bit more, not going to say streetwise, but just knows the game maybe now rather than 20 years ago? Yeah, I don't think, you know, I wouldn't, I've criticised Mike Riley as the person because of what he did to me. However, Mike Riley's done a lot of good things, and what he did was he built a, a, a very successful business. Um, Pigeon Well, a very, you know, well-structured organisation. Uh, you know, and with that, he's got to take some praise. However, it's what he's what he did do was build a new assessment scheme, which didn't wasn't practical to referee in. Um, it was more numbers, so you could produce all these statistics every season to say that referees are better. Which, you know, statistics are good in one way. Reality is, it's what happens on the field and what people perceive as what's a good season or, or what's good referees. So um, he, he was very analytical. He was an accountant. So you can understand why he went down this route. And, you know, the, with with Mike is if he built up some coaching structure with ex-referees, because when referees retire, if you look at the top referees over the last 10 years, for example, Graham Paul left, no doesn't work in Pigeon Well, Howard Webb left doesn't work in Pigeon Well. Mark Halsey left. Bill Dow left. Mark Lattenberg left. Not one of the top referees has stayed in the organisation. That's That sends a lot of messages. You know, I don't have to speak about it. That just sends a message that the top referees don't want to stay within the Pigeon Well structure for various reasons. And when you do that, he hasn't got the coaching structure. He hasn't got... He can stay as a manager. However, you're right. You need active... The guys who are, for example... The ones that are retiring because of age need to stay to, to educate the next level referees. And if you lose that, you lose all the quality. And 
over the years, English refereeing has lost so much quality that they could offer to the to the referees. Howard Webb is in the MLS educating the referees. I'm in Greece. So how can we have two very, very, um, very successful referees educating referees abroad and not in England? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, well, you took Howard Webb's job in Saudi, so. Uh, yeah, but that was for the money. <laughs> no, it was, that, that, you know, to take, to, take, to take that, it was, you know, after uh, 13 years of being a Premier League referee, I'd, I'd lost all the motivation and I'd done all the big games and it was a good opportunity for me to develop my career also abroad, um, but also, you know, financially it made more sense. I've got a family to look after, of course, and it's such a yeah. short career. So it was a decision that was quite easy, even though I've left probably one of the best leagues in the world. I, mean, I want to talk about Saudi a bit later on because obviously we're all Newcastle fans here and, and Saudi and Newcastle have a bit of a, a thing going on uh, at the moment. But um, about the next generation of referees, do you think there's the quality there or do you think um, they're too slow to promote them? Like, Because you referenced Michael Oliver and uh, Stuart Atwell in the book. I remember when Stuart Atwell came in and he was very young and he was speaking as a football fan just on the terraces. He was terrible when he first come through, like putting some of the worst displays I've ever seen. But now he's one of the best. He's one of the best around. Um, do you think they hold younger referees back or is that a good thing? I think one of the issues in England is it's we're employed and therefore it's very difficult to remove people when they're employed. If you look at somebody like Lee Mason, for example, he's just left the group um, after all these years. You've got a lot of referees that are not refereeing regular in Premier League. However, have been in the list for so many years and it stops sometimes the new generation coming through. We've got some young referees now who refereeing is completely different from when I was refereeing to now because of the technology, the VAR. Referees are, are having to referee completely different. So we're seeing more, um, not robotic, but we're seeing more referees who are completely different. And younger referees can develop faster because they've got the, the safe, safety net of, of the VAR. If we look at, for example, Stuart Atwell when he first refereed, he made so many high-profile mistakes. For example, the goal school at Watford, that, that would have been put right by VAR. So he wouldn't have been remembered for such the high-profile mistakes and he could have developed probably a bit better. So maybe Stuart, Stuart Atwell is an example where his style of refereeing bends, bends more towards the technology and the support of the technology than when he's on his own having to make split-second decisions, which we had to do for many, many years. You touched about VAR there, and obviously you left the Premier League 2016-17 season, so VAR wasn't in at this point, but obviously it was being talked about for a long, long time. When I, when I was reading, there was the, you had Jose Mourinho coming in after Manchester United Stoke, I believe, and Ryan Shawcross, and there was, he was asking about a handball, and you see it clear as day, it was nowhere near his arm. And you didn't have the VAR screen because obviously it wasn't implemented, but is it just almost to kind of clear your mind on the pitch earlier that you've got the decision right? Would you have not been able to, for example, go in your car, go home, wait till match the day comes on and go, Actually, I knew I was right all this time because it must play with your mind. You'd, if you had that screen just there, 20 seconds, I'd forgotten about I know I'm right. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I was lucky enough to use it in Saudi Arabia and China. So I have got experience of using VAR as a referee. And you're completely right. One of the, one of the things on the pitch is when you have a doubt in your head, it's, it plays in your mind. It's a bit like a striker missing two open goals. Probably Joe Linton might have the same problem every week. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> I thought I'd, that if... If, if you've missed an open goal, it plays in your mind. For the next one, you don't want to make the same mistake. And as referees, you want to clear your mind. And what you, what you What's good about using the VAR is you can have a conversation with the VAR. This is why I've made the decision. This is what I've seen out of my two eyes. If there is a problem or you've got any doubt, please send us to the screen. And one of the best things is seeing your decision again, clearing your mind. And players actually accept it more that you've had a second chance to look at it and we can move on. And... If you, if you look at the Ryan Shaw cross incident, for example, I could have had that clear. The VAR could have said, Mark, it's clearly hit his chest. And that would have probably calmed the manager down. However, Mourinho said he'd seen the video when he came into my dressing room to criticise the decision. However, what I don't know what video he'd been watching, maybe <laughs> Peppa Pig or something, because <laughs> he clearly didn't see what I seen on Match of the Day later on. With VAR, I want to talk about just... One incident in particular, because it maybe shows that like there's still 
not work to do with the technology because I personally think it's very good. But I don't know if you saw it, but when Newcastle were at Villa last month, Callum Wilson goes through, gets taken out of the game by their keeper Martinez. We get awarded a penalty, but because his toenail was offside, the whole thing gets forgotten about. That doesn't sit right with me as being as biased as you like, <laughs> but what, surely the human interpretation of some of these incidents through VAR needs to be improved a bit. Yeah, I think if, if, I think one of the things that will probably all get frustrated is consistency. If we look at the Wilson and Bruno Fernandes situation the week before, Bruno Fernandes was, was allowed and we all thought, you know what, this is the best. Now we're not getting toenails or armpits offside. However, the Callum Wilson one, which is very similar, gets punished. And I think that's what upsets a lot of people where the consistency is. What we have to understand with AR is we all wanted it. And for me, it's the best addition in football because referees are individuals, we all make mistakes. You know what? Let's put the high-profile mistakes right. However, the issue with technology was it didn't... The rules in football and the laws of the game in football, which are hundreds of years old, didn't act itself to technology. So, for example, for years, we always give the benefit of the doubt to the attacking team for goals, offsides, handballs, penalty area decisions. And therefore, this type of offence didn't lend itself to technology because we can't have one millimetre offside... So all these type of offences, the benefit of the doubt went from the attacker to the defender, which doesn't create goals. But one of the benefits technology did do, if you remember four or five years ago, everybody was complaining about refereeing that when there was a corner of free kicks, there was too much holding in the penalty area and it wasn't being punished. Because as a referee, warding a penalty is more difficult than warding a defensive free kick. Sure, it's human, it's human knowledge that you know it's easier to give a defensive free kick because it's not controversial where if you awarded penalty it's very controversial so what VAR has done it's actually cleared up a lot of corner kicks and free kicks and that's what we're now seeing more of we're seeing more and more corner kick goals and more attack and free kick goals which has helped the game we just need now to tweak one or two laws for example the offside law to make it a bit more tolerant um, and they've certainly helped with the handball because, you know, we can't have two rules, one for the defender and one for the attacker, except we can't have somebody scoring direct with a goal with your hand. It doesn't feel fair. But if it happens two or three phases before an accidental handball, why should it be ruled out? Because if a defender accidentally handballs, it's play on. So it's we're now getting closer and closer. And I think one more, two more years, I think it'll get better and better and then we'll just accept it. However... One of the big additions that I would like to see in the future, certainly, is that the, the communication between the referee and the VAR is made available to everybody, the TV companies, people in the stadium. So it gives people an understanding of what's going on in the process. And if you hear what's going on, which I've lucky enough sometimes I've had because I work for broadcasts, it's very professional and it's done very similar to the cricket, how you listen to the process. Even if you don't agree with it, you have to accept it. And that's something that we all have as frustrations as football fans is we just want to know what's going on. Until we know what's going on, we'll always be frustrated. I think there's some very, very good points there, Mark. I think there were, I don't know if you were in this TV studio. I think it was in America or Canada and they had the, uh, the FA Cup final a few years ago. I think Michael Oliver was refereeing Chelsea versus Manchester United. And they actually, you could hear what they were saying. And it just made it. As a football fan, I've never heard, never heard anything like that. And it was just so clear. And you couldn't argue about it. The players straight away knew what was going on. And if the fans knew, that'd be, it'd be so brilliant. But um, yeah, it'd be absolutely fantastic. You could just imagine the conversations, couldn't you? From Maybe even your day, like to Alex Ferguson, Sam Allardyce, uh, some of the managers that you've mentioned, you, that would have made probably your life a lot more easy, I can imagine. Yeah, definitely make your life easier. But I don't think we want the communications for, for everything that happens on the field because there's a lot said on the football field and you know a lot of it's raw emotion. We all get emotional in, in high-profile matches. So I'm talking about you know certainly when the VAR and the referee are, are talking, you know not between the assistant and the referee because there's a lot of chat, there's a lot of you know discussions happen. However, people do want to hear when the VAR is informed. You want to hear what the VAR is saying, what they're checking, 
and why they've made the decision. And I think people will understand the decisions more and be better educated because at the moment, everybody's got an opinion about decisions, but they don't, you know, nobody wants to listen to the referee who's the one that makes it. One thing I learned from the book was that because I thought your only experience of, of sort of officiating at St. James's was Shearer's testimonial, but no. you were fourth official for Newcastle West Ham. Um, yeah. And I, I did chuckle at the um, the picture that's in the book because all the other officials are in the proper refereeing gear and you're in like a, just a Northern League track suit. Uh, <laughs> so, but um, would that have been Kenny Dagleish? Was he manager then or was that Rude Hood? No, it's or... Bobby. No, I think it's oh. Bobby. I think it was, was Sir it? Bobby. I think it was Sir Bobby. It needs to check. I think it was. I think so. I can't remember. I'll have to check. I remember doing fourth officials before. Maybe before Sir Bobby, I think, because I remember doing some matches with Sir Bobby. Um, because what happened years ago was fourth official, you weren't the, the senior referee. It was always the assistant referee would go on as the referee if you got injured. And I remember that getting the phone call as a young young referee to say that you're going to be fourth official at St. James's Park. And I was like, I was like shocked. Um, because it didn't matter if you were a football fan or not. However, I remember arriving at the stadium with some with my friends because we're allowed two tickets. Uh, they looked after us. Hospitality was great. And I remember going on the pitch with Graham Poll, who was the referee, and he said to us, he said, Mark, he said, look at this. He said, it's fantastic. This is your first game ever in the Premier League. I said, yeah, yes, yes. He said, uh, as a foot, as a referee, you must support a football team. And I, and I didn't want to say it, you know. And I said to him, I don't, I don't support anybody. He says, come on. He says, I support QBR. I thought in my head, you don't support QBR. You support Chelsea. You always give Chelsea decisions. But <laughs> he, said, he, said, he said QPR. And I said, okay, then. He said, come on. You, you must support a football team. And I said, no, I don't. He said, come on, then. He said, if you get the Sunday papers, which result do you look at first? And straight away, I'm quick thinking, I went Sunderland. He says, why Sunderland? I says, to see if they've got beat. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I think the best decision you'd ever made at St. James's Park, Mark, was that penalty right at the end of Alan Shearer's testimony. It was an absolute stonewall penalty. Um, can you tell us all about that day and when you got asked to be the referee? And what was that experience like? Because, again, of course, you can't referee Newcastle, but this must be the, the, the second best thing. Yeah, what was interesting a few months before. Um, I stopped my season. I stopped my season in January because I had to have an operation on my patella tendon. My patella tendon kept um, snapping. And for years, I couldn't walk. I was taking pills to get through matches. And in the end, I just started becoming an international referee, I think, 2006. And therefore, the decision after my fitness test in UEFA was to, to have the operation. Missed, missed all of the end of the season and then come back the following season fit. Um, the surgeon said I would be out in possibly six months, won't be able to walk, don't do much. Um, however, in the March, um, Alan Shearer called um, and said, would you like to referee me testimonial? And it was like, come on, why would I not want to referee your testimonial? But I wasn't fit. Um, but I remember going that, that season, I went to watch him at Sunderland. That was when uh, it was Sunderland-Newcastle and that's when they were in, he got injured. Um and therefore, he couldn't play in his testimonial, which was really sad. It was, you know, to, to, to not being able to finish his career. And when I arrived at the stadium, there was it was like being in a movie. There was a script. Um, and it was in the script, um, which everybody agreed to, of course, Celtic and everything else, was that he would come on, he would start the game. He, he couldn't run, of course. So he kicked off, we re-kicked off. Um, and... The, the chance was, and it didn't matter what the score was, that he would come on at the end of the game with a penalty kick. The goalkeeper would dive right. Alan Shearer would put it in the left, or, or vice versa, I can't remember, but it was he was definitely the keeper had to dive the wrong way. And I'm thinking, Alan Shearer said to us when he came on, he says, Mark, what happens if I miss? I says, we'll keep re-spotting until you score. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, what a night that was, though. That was, uh, I mean, that, that's got a big... As a boyhood Newcastle fan, you look around on the pitch and you've got Shearer there for a bit, Celez, Shea Given, um, Albert Luque. <laughs> yeah, but we remember remember Albert Luque scored at Sunderland that few games before. 1-0 down, 4-1 yeah. up. Exactly. Yeah, so, you know, we had one of the best strikers. He finally come good, didn't he? <laughs> uh, what what led you to go to that game? I know you were injured, but... Surely you would have. You surely you would have known as a Premier League official. You would have attracted a bit of attention being seen at the stadium of uh, light. Yeah, yeah I know what you're going to say. Because <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, but the problem was when they were winning 1-0, I think Liam Lawrence scored, if I remember rightly, he scored 1-0. And I went up, because my friend had a box, still has, and I went up to his box and they were giving it big large, as always <laughs> always it was them days. And it was 1-0 and everything was good. Um, but I had to have a police escort to go back to his box after the game number one because <laughs> there was a lot. But it's typical, it was typical because it was happening all over the stadium because in them, certainly happened in them days, Newcastle fans would buy season tickets only for the one match. So therefore, there was pockets everywhere in the stadium with Newcastle fans and there was just fighting all everywhere in the stadium because there's so much rivalry. And, you know, I think, you know, Sunderland have had the bragging rights for years. And unfortunately, it's, ha- it's not going to happen for the near future because of what's happened to Sunderland Football Club. But without that rivalry and without them derby days, it's, it's sadly missed in the northeast because, you know, nobody wants to see a club like, like Sunderland in such a, a low low division when you know what all we want is them two games a year that were absolutely relish sometimes it's not too bad if they're down there for like a year maybe two years it is funny get, sometimes yeah, yeah but we need to we need to get them back in the Premier League so when I sell my house in Sunderland at least it'll go up in value you know so <laughs> <laughs> um, you talk about obviously derby games rivalry games how did you approach those games I think in particular maybe the Merseyside derby uh, the Manchester derby in particular how did you find those games and what did you learn most about them I remember I only ever refereed one Merseyside derby and it'll be my last it was uh, I had such a nightmare second half and young referee didn't didn't really understand the derby where Manchester derbies were different North London derbies were different um and I used to speak to referees and I said what's Newcastle Sunderland like and I said it's exactly like the Merseyside derby um and I'll use the word work and class. It was different. Um, Liverpool, Everton, where there were work and class people who lived and died for their football every Saturday, where Manchester, for example, in the tunnel, uh, the Manchester derby, they would kiss and cuddle each other, the players, um, because they were, they, were, they were either teammates internationally or they lived next door to each other. So there wasn't seemed to be that, that rivalry on the pitch. There was a level of respect but there was no respect Newcastle or Sunderland. It was, you know, nobody would eyeball eyeball. The only game that I always found difficult, very similar to that, was Manchester United-Liverpool. The hatred that they used to play. And a lot of the players played for England, but in this type of match, they wouldn't even speak to each other in the tunnel. So that, that was the only... You could class it as a derby if, if, for bragging rights. However, the Manchester United-Liverpool game was probably the most fierce Um you know, other than the Merseyside derby, which unfortunately I never had the chance to referee after I made such so many high-profile mistakes. Was there a certain fixture that when you got, when the assignments come out, that made you go, oh, shit, I really could do, with, really could do without this game? I'm, I'm, I mean, from the book, I'm guessing it might be one involving Chelsea. No, no, it wasn't bad. Chelsea, no. Crystal Palace, because they always lost <laughs> 13 yeah. matches. Uh, they always lost. But there was one place I didn't like going, was Norwich, because it took you forever. Oh, it doesn't ever matter where in the country you are. It's, um, oh, it's a bitch to get to. So, especially from the north, it was single road for about, I don't know what, 70, 80 miles, but it was the longest 70, 80 miles you could ever face. And after a match, if you drove home, which you tried to at least drive so much back and then try to book a hotel, that 70 miles was a killer because, you know, you've had tractors coming out, you had caravans and you just couldn't get past anything. So Norwich felt like it was in another country, another planet. Um, so I never liked, never liked going to Norwich. Even though it had an airport, nobody seemed to fly into Norwich Airport unless you went by Amsterdam. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, I just want to touch about a particular player because you, you just mentioned him as a gentleman and that is the late Gary Speed. Um as a Newcastle fan as well, Mark. Um, what was he like to referee? And was he was he one of the best, just to put it out there? Was he just one of the best? It's interesting because I never had really much in, involvement when he was at Newcastle United. If I'd seen him out or had the chance to see him in public or after the match, he would always speak. However, when he went to Bolton, for example, I was a young referee and he would give us the confidence. Maybe he was playing mind games, I don't know. But however, he was always seemed to be a gentleman and... Even if I'd made a mistake on a pitch, he wouldn't criticise us. If I'd made a good decision, he would say, well done. After the match, he would always come and say, Mark, you did really well. Keep, you know, And he'd give us the confidence. Not all players were like that. Some would destroy you. Craig Bellamy, for example, would destroy um, because it was always about you know, 
him winning football match where Gary Speed seemed to be seemed to be the gentleman where probably Gary Speed got away with probably yellow cards because the way he was that maybe he thought that was the best way out and it certainly helped me and another player like that very similar was Vincent Company he was very very similar in nature where I remember making a mistake in the first half of a game at Manchester City and he wait, he was waiting for us at half time and he just said to us Mark he said players make mistakes referees make mistakes go and do what you're good at and you know what you think what a what a gentleman and Gary Speed was exactly the same. Oh, it's just so sad. I would have loved to have seen Gary Speed manage Newcastle one day after the job it he would, did with Wales. It would have been oh, I remember. I still remember the day I was on the I was on the sofa and uh, I was watching goals on Sunday, and then it came came on the on the on the bottom of the screen, and I think most people would remember it where you just went cold. You you couldn't understand it. Yeah, it's just sad because he was such a such a great player and a great player for the Premier League. Oh, absolutely, he was. Um, with with other players that you would have had experiences of, maybe that have either just left Newcastle. Like, did you ever have? Because of the way you 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 like to manage people, and that and that's that's a big theme in in a few chapters of the book is managing people in, in quite a, a, a unique modern way. Um, was there ever a, a few cross words with the likes of I don't know Kieran Dyer shouldn't have left Newcastle, Jermaine Genus, Goldfish Bowl, Nobby Solano leaving Villa to Villa for a bit and then coming back? Did you ever have much experience of the of the, the proper Newcastle players? Like? No, m- most of them are always gentlemen. Even some of them that you know players that have played for Newcastle and you see them abroad. I remember Tamuri Kitspire. I was refereeing a match in in Cyprus and he was the coach. And, you know, he comes over and gives us a cuddly. You know, he was a legend, and uh, you know, he knew I was a Newcastle fan. And you know, you, you meet people who have played for Newcastle because you you come from a city that they thought you were dead friendly, um, and you knew they. I remember Kevin Nolan telling us a story. He said, "Mark, he said, when you live in Newcastle, you live in a goldfish bowl." He said, "You can't go to the fuel station. You can't go to the shops without somebody talking about football." He says, "You move to London." He says you're lost in the golf. He says you, you can go on the subway and nobody even recognises you. He said it's so it's so different, and players understood that. And, you know they knew that they had to engage with football fans because Newcastle and Sunderland fans were very very passionate. Same with Liverpool and Everton. They, they, you know the players have to accept that. And you know many of the players. What most of me banter used to be was with Sunderland players because if, <laughs> if if they did something wrong, I would say yeah because he played for Sunderland and they would laugh. You know so. <laughs> That was probably the more banter when players had played for Sunderland, and uh, I remember, you know, you, I remember even Jordan Henderson. The story with Jordan, Jordan, Jordan left Liverpool, of course, and his family lived not far from me and Seaham, and he uh, he got sent off against Manchester City, quite rightly so. Bad tackle, sent him off, and uh, a few weeks later, I bumped into him, and I, he said to us, he said, "You know that red card?" I said, "Yeah, yeah." Thinking he's going to criticise it, he said, "No, no." He said, "I watched it back. It was a really bad tackle." He said. But when I got back in the dressing room, he says, I looked at my mobile phone. He says, my mum was giving us dog's abuse. saying, why did he get sent off? Why this? Why this? So he was telling us and I was laughing. So I was refereeing him playing. He was playing Liverpool, Bournemouth at Bournemouth for Liverpool and he, uh, the following season. And he was getting frustrated and he started using you know bad language, dissent. And Jordan's not normally that type of person. He's quite you know balanced, and uh, but he, he was losing his discipline and he said some choice words to us over a decision and I just turned around and I said, what did you say? And he said the foul language again. I said, I'm going to tell your mother what you've just said to me and he just went white. He didn't know what to say. <laughs> Good line. Good line. <laughs> um, 2016, Mark. Probably the best year of your refereeing career. The FA Cup final amongst big, big Premier League matches the Champions League final and the Euro 2016 final. Um, it doesn't get much better than that, but with each, I'm talking about in particular the FA Cup, the Champions League and Euro, European Championships, do you almost feel like you have to prepare for them so differently because of the magnitude of the game? Yeah, of course. Push, push the Euro Championships out, you know, without doubt, you don't expect anything. I knew I was in the tournament for sure. I had to prepare for the tournament, but what was difficult was to do the to do at least the two matches because first of all it was announced that I'm going to referee the the Champions League final, and then it was announced that I'm going to referee the FA Cup final, and 
one what you do realize is you've got such high profile matches two very high profile matches in one week and i used to always as a child wake up and on a saturday morning and watch the teams go to the hotels the FA cup final was really really special however over the years it's not been so you know televised it's lost its little bit of a sparkle however you know to, to referee the FA Cup final is such a privilege as, a, as an English referee. So to referee the final, I prepare. It's completely different to the following week. However, it, I didn't really perform. You know, I, I probably, um, you know, early early in the match, I may be a bit nervous. I'm at Wembley, even though I'd refereed at Wembley many times before. I just probably snatched at one or two decisions. A bit like players early in the match, you need to settle down and, I should have played advantage to Connor Wickham, another Sunderland player. Um, probably didn't think he would do what he was going to do. However, <laughs> he did. He carried on and uh, the player stopped, to be fair. He didn't really stop. But it leaves a sour taste on people's mouths that I should have should have played the advantage. And some things in the game I did very well at. Um, however, I didn't really perform. And I was really angry with myself. And I remember walking up the stairs one side, getting booed off Crystal Palace fans. And then coming down the stairs, I was getting booed off Man United fans. And I'm thinking, my God, you know, I just can't win either way. And, and then that night was really, really down. I was not not happy with myself. The next day, I'm really down. But then really on the Monday, I start have to start picking myself up because I have to start preparing for the, for the match in Milan. And this one was completely different because it's, you know, the Madrid derby. It's the biggest club game in the world. It's in Milan. And you know, the amount of people that are going to watch it. But I always remember, I can't remember much that happened in the match, but I remember them before the match and Alicia Keys was singing and, and the players were getting irate because they wanted to get out. And we're standing in the tunnel and uh, Ramos and um, the, I can't remember the, the, the Madrid, the Atletico, they, they were going crazy with us. And um, I said, well, what's up with you? And they went, can we get out? We want to get out. And I says, well, you go and tell Alicia Keys. You go and walk out and tell Alicia Keys to stop singing because I'm not. <laughs> and then when, when when we got out, when we started to walk out and I got the, the nod to walk out, all I could think about was getting that match ball off the plinth and not dropping it in front of everyone. So when I picked it up, <laughs> I was that nervous. I picked it up and just grabbed the hold of it and I thought, I ain't going to drop this. <laughs> How big of an influence? Obviously, everyone recognises Pierluigi Colina just from them eyes um that can just stare through your soul um but how, how big of an influence was he on your refereeing career because obviously he was the one that that not gave you these finals because at the end of the day you deserved them but he was in charge of choosing wasn't he yeah but he, he he destroyed us in the past he destroyed us after a game in malmo because i was wearing the same colors as atletico madrid and it could have been sold before the game and i didn't take all the kids to the stadium and he absolutely destroyed us after the match, saying this is not what I expect from a Champions League referee. And two weeks later, he gives us another match, which I wanted to die for him. So he had this, he had this way of managing people, which was very, very special. He got the best out of me. However, he learned us so much about refereeing, not just the laws of the game, about understanding the game. And there was a match in uh, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, second leg of the Champions League. I think it was 2015. And uh, he met us before the game and he said, Mark, have you watched the video from the first game? And I had, I'd watched it four or five times. He said, have you watched what's been going on in the game, a tactic? I said, I didn't see anything. And he just showed us that one of the smallest players from Bayern Munich, Thiago, who's at Liverpool, was blocking Piquet. And Piquet was the only tall player from Barcelona because everything Alaba, uh, Mascarano were the small players. And what they were doing was they were created by the block to take Piquet out of the game. It allowed Muller and Lewandowski and these type of players, the tall players, to in Boateng to attack the ball. And it was complete tactic. And he just said, you need to solve it because it happened six times without a goal. If, it, if a goal scored, you'll, uh, you will you can destroy your match. And uh, nobody even knew it was after 14 minutes. I give a free kick. I said to Thiago, because not everybody speaks English, I'm watching. And he doesn't, he's like looking at his peak, he's looking at us going, what are you going to do next? And the coach from Barcelona screaming down the fourth official's headset, this is a tactic, this is a tactic, watch, watch, watch. And then uh, as the ball gets brought in, Thiago just blocks him. And I just said, thank you very much, free kick. Nobody even knew about it. And I just said to Thiago, if you do keep doing that, my friend, I'll just keep punishing. It's up to you. I know it's a tactic. Pique is clapping. After that, the moment, the match became so easy because the players just thought, wow, this referee knows exactly what we're going to do. And once you got to that level that you knew what they were going to do next, they, you got into their heads and then instead of them coming into your head, you won them. And that's when my light 
changed in 2015. And that's why I believe I came the best, one of the best referees in the world in 2016, because I started to understand the tactics and not just the laws of the game. Is Kalina the greatest referee of all time? There's always going to be an argument, um, you know, because he refereed the World Cup final. Howard Webb refereed the World Cup final. However, there was lots of respect. I don't think Everton fans, I think I've got the same level with Everton fans because Colina and Clattenburg are the same friends with Everton fans. Kill us. But what's interesting is, and we have the same discussions every time, is that if you speak to Italians, nobody, they didn't seem to like Colina. But you, when he went abroad, he had that much respect. And it was very similar in my nature where in England, you didn't really get the respect. But when I went abroad in Champions League matches, they wanted me to referee their matches. So it's it's a very fine line. But in my opinion, because of you know what what games he did and he was an icon to me when I was growing up, was that by far he was one of the, the best referees. But also as a manager and a mentor to me, he was so special. Obviously, you mentioned in the book how much of a relief it was in the end <clears throat> to leave the Premier League. And you went over to Saudi. I mean, judging from judging from the book, I don't. Is it fair to say that your experience of of Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabian football federations wasn't wholly positive? Do you think they'd be any good at owning a football club, maybe in the northeast? You know, let let's let's be honest. Saudi's changing so much, and you know, you can't change from here to here in in the matter of one year, two years. Saudi has its unique laws. Um, you have to respect prayer times. You have to respect a lot of their cultures. You know, there's cultures around the world, so you have to embrace their cultures and you have to accept their cultures. And but what they're doing, for example, their football. Saudi Arabia are very positive in in Asian football. They do very very well. You know, they've qualified for the World Cup, so they are in a position where they are getting stronger and stronger. They're investing a lot of money in sports, golf, football, boxing motor racing horse racing so they are investing a lot of money in sport and what we what i found when i was working in this this is interesting for newcastle fans to listen when when i was in saudi they always wanted to buy a football club and what they did for many many years they used to send some of their younger players out to spain and used to pay a lot of money to the spanish clubs to try and get one of them two players to develop for their national team and what they were looking at at the time was a Premier League side so they could develop some of their players within the English game. So if if they are going to use this model to, to bring their, kid, their, their younger players through, fine. However, if they're using their powers to say, because they're the owners, that you must play this player in the Premier League, then it becomes different. So if you want to develop the players in the academies, fantastic. However, they can't, shouldn't be allowed to influence certainly the first team. That's what you've got to coach for. And that's sometimes in Saudi Arabia, they have this tendency that because they, 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 they employ you or they own you or they own the club, they will use their powers to, to influence who's in the team, who's not in the team. So there is a positive that they've got a lot of money, but it's would they interfere? Will they interfere in the running of the football club? Because we all know in Newcastle, for example, it's not an easy city and it's not an easy club. Mike Ashley tried. You know, Mike Ashley's got many positives and he's got many negatives. But at the end of the day, it's because Newcastle United were such a high, you know, under Kevin Keegan, this type of era, we did so well without winning the league. However, we were competitive. Now we're not so competitive and it's what, what do we want to do now? And the problem now in the Premier League is the gap got so big. When the foreign in, foreign investment came in, City, United, Chelsea, Chelsea were the first with Abramovich, then the Glaziers, then all these type of people, Mansour, the money that they've invested is too much for anybody else to catch up. Yes, you get one team doing well, West Ham could be the team, they invest one or two, but you can't sustain that where these clubs are so far ahead. Newcastle United can't compete unless you get a person who's going to invest hundreds of millions and then you've got the financial fair players, you've got all these issues, and you've also got the issue, one big issue also, and this has always happened over the years at Newcastle, is that it's very difficult to get players, top players, to come up to the northeast. When it, it, a lot of players, they'll sign to London because they want to be in London. Manchester's the furthest north they'll go, but they'll never come and sign for Newcastle unless you pay over the odds. And 
that wants to pay over the odds. Very fair point. Just finally, Mark, final question. What is the greatest moment in your refereeing career? Um, some people, many football fans will say the day I quit, <laughs> for sure. Uh, like <laughs> just Everton, probably. Probably everybody, <laughs> probably everybody. No, they, you know, probably the greatest moment, and it's sad, it's not during it, it's probably me school teacher from Cramlett High School when Mr. Reach, he, t- he said to us one day, he said, Mark, you're not going to make it as a professional footballer. Why, why not try refereeing? And I have to say what a decision it was because I got the chance to, to referee some amazing matches. Could I have played in them? Without doubt, I couldn't. I wasn't good enough. So, you know, to have that privilege of being able to, to referee on the biggest matches of the world from, from the northeast, just a person who loved football, to have that privilege is such an amazing thing. Well, Mark, it's been a privilege interviewing you along with Sam today. It's been absolutely fantastic to get a real insight into refereeing at the very highest level. You're very, very uh, privileged, as I've mentioned. Sam, go on, I think you wanted to say something, you? Yeah, no, just um, the autobiography, Whistleblower, is available to buy, and we will Thank have you. it on the Newcastle Fans TV Amazon store as well. Links will be in the description. Um, I yep. urge you all to buy it. And um, shout out to Craig Hope as well, who I understand um, helped you with it. Um, just, just briefly, why, why Craig Hope? Yeah, Craig, we've both got a connection through the Daily Mail. I still do some columns on the Daily Mail. And with Craig being from the Northeast, mm. I wanted to get somebody to, to basically write it as I'm saying it. So it was important that he had such a relationship where he could feel the emotion. And what what I tried to do, and Headline were a big supporter of mine to, to get this book, um, because it wasn't just Craig, it was also Headline to to try and get this book out to print. Um, and they, they were also a big supporter. The main the main message I wanted to get across was, you know, I wanted the people to the inside to see what it was really like being a referee at the highest level, but also to, to, to make people realise that what I was as a referee, I was different as a person. And, and I wanted the people to understand that sometimes it doesn't matter where you come from or what you do, if you work hard, you can achieve your goals. And I hope that when people read this book, some people can be inspired that, you know, that I could do it or I could achieve it with hard work. And, and I hope that people enjoy the book. Yes, there's some there's some moments in the book um, which are funny. There's some, you know, with the managers, the players, the referees. However, it just gives people an experience of what it was really like um, and I've only given them a flavour because I, I couldn't tell them everything or the book would be so 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 big um, yes. but it gives, it gives people a, a wonderful insight of my life from the North East um, and also what it was like being a Premier League referee Yeah, it, 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 I think with the type of writer Craig Hope is for the Mail writing about Newcastle and, and some of the stories you've got in there I think it was a perfect match um, for, to get into it. It's a brilliant read. I urge people to buy it because it's um, fantastic. I mean, no spoiler alerts, but there's a few people who don't come out of it overly well. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, that's life. And, you know, what we've yeah. got to understand is it doesn't matter what industry we come from. We're not all going to like people. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's some people I like and some people I respect. I respect Mike Riley and I respect David Ellery. However, I don't have to like them as people. And what they did for my career was not so good. So at the end of the day, I want to be honest. That's 100%. It is a very honest book and it's a fantastic book as well. So we do thoroughly recommend that you do buy it for all our listeners and watchers around Newcastle Fans TV. So for myself, Jonathan Greenwood, Sam Muller, and a big thanks to Mark Rattenberg. We'll see you all very, very soon.